0: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast.
1: This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log.
0: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 422, Prodigal Daughter.
2: Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek
1: one by one, picking it apart for morals, meanings, and messages, and seeing
2: if we can really go home again. This week, Esri Dax uh, goes home again, for better or for worse. We might side toward worse. I, I don't know. Let's see how it plays out. And we'll meet the Tegans minus
1: Chrissy, in a moment. But first, a word on how you can reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com, And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And once again, the
2: dapperest man in the history of trivia, here is John Champion. Well, thank you for that. Trivia for today's episode, Prodigal Daughter. It was written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, our returning team, Ira Stephen Bear's friends. Uh, They had contributed Treachery, Faith, and the Great River earlier in the season— And the production found itself with a very short deadline for their next episode. They had originally pitched a show about Sisko meeting his future self, but Iris steered them toward a story that would explore Esri Dax's backstory. One idea was that her mother was indeed part of the Orion Syndicate and had even pulled strings to have Esri joined with the Dax symbiont. It was too much and too dark. The Syndicate stayed, but now it was oriented back toward O'Brien's encounter with Bilby in Honor Among Thieves. The episode was directed by Victor Lobel. Here we are at the end of Victor's four-episode run on DS9. He directed In the Pale Moonlight, most recently in our discussion, and we will catch him twice on Voyager. Now, the title of the episode comes from the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son, depending on which version of Luke you read from the Bible. It's not a direct corollary to this story, though. The son decided to take his half of his father's inheritance early, and then ran off and spent it and went through famine, and then he returns home ashamed, only to be celebrated by his father. That makes his brother jealous, but their father is just... Glad that uh, he who was lost is now found, so break out the fatted calf and celebrate. Some of the paintings that Norvo Tegan has been working on were actually created by Russ English, who was a set security officer who worked at Paramount. Uh, Don't worry, though, his originals were not destroyed. The art department had copies made. Let's talk about our guest stars. Meet the Teagan family. Esri's brothers, Janelle and Norvo, are played by Mikael Salazar and Kevin Rom, respectively. Mikael has just a short acting resume, preceded here by a couple of appearances on Murphy Brown. He later moved over into the fitness industry and owns his own business. Kevin, on the other hand, got his guest roles relatively early in his career and then kept at it just landing a number of recurring roles he's been on Desperate Housewives and Bates Motel and he had a very prominent recurring role as Ted Chow on Mad Men. Esri's mother Yanis is played by Lee Taylor Young who has had a long career going back to her on-screen debut as a recurring character on Peyton Place in the late 60s. A bit of science fiction followed as she was cast in the 1971 dystopian classic Soylent Green. Recurring in guest roles followed from soap operas to a voyage on the love boat. This is her only Star Trek appearance, but her sister, Dae Young, appeared on both TNG and in the DS9 episode, A Simple Investigation. Finally, I wanted to point out Thaddeus Bokar, played by John Paragon. John was a creative force that has gone somewhat under the radar for a lot of viewers, but even if you don't know his name, you know his work. He was a member of Groundlings Theater. Like so many comedy innovators of the 1970s, like Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman, he helped develop the character Elvira with Cassandra Peterson. He had a stand-up comedy career of his own, and he was Jombie on Pee-wee's Playhouse, He was also someone others went to for development of scripts and comedy entertainment. In later years, he even worked with Disney Imagineering for some of their show concepts to incorporate improv. We lost John in April of 2021.
0: I'm sure that in the long tradition of harmonious Star Trek reunions, Ezri is going to have a great time visiting with her totally normal, well-adjusted family this week.
2: Prologue. Sitting around a Quark's bar, Kira Odo and Ezri Dax are discussing the unfortunate order of Gah. The Chanzia had police to celebrate Martok's birthday. Ezri hates the stuff and wants nothing to do with it. Quiet and distracted this whole time is Dr. Bashir, who's thinking about his pal, Chief O'Brien, who's due to return to the station today after some time away. But the chief doesn't arrive, and that forces Bashir to drop a bomb on Captain Sisko. O'Brien wasn't away on a family visit uh, to see his father, to be clear. He actually went away to New Sydney in the Sopora system, trying to find what happened to Marika Bilby, the widow of the down-on-his-luck criminal Miles had befriended when working undercover for Starfleet Intelligence. She's missing, and Miles has always felt a bit concerned about her since, you know, he was part of the reason her husband got whacked through a setup by the Orion Syndicate. Cisco is not happy about the news, he wants a report from Bashir on the whole mess, and he turns to Esri Dax. It just so happens that her mother and two brothers live in the Sephora system, operators of a mining business, and far away from Federation jurisdiction. Esri has a, shall we say, distant relationship with her family, hasn't even spoken to her mother in six months, but she's willing to ask for help finding the chief, and her mother is happy to oblige as long as Esri comes home for a visit. Act 1. With no small amount of trepidation, Esri heads off to Sephora 7. Home is a huge, glass-walled, modern home overlooking an entirely industrial view of the mining operation. Esri is greeted by one of her brothers, the frustrated artist Norvo, who immediately denigrates the work he has hanging up all over the house. Then there's Janelle, a little tougher and more businesslike, he's just come from the mine. Finally, there's mother, Yanas. Icy, tough, but glad to see her daughter. There's a bit of business to take care of, always. Janas tells Norvo she needs the financial reports he's supposed to have finished. She then tells Janelle that they need to fire someone called Lorkin, who is incompetent in costing the company a fortune. With that, she leaves the room with Esri, which leaves the two sons to talk more candidly. They'll fire Lorkin, but this is more likely deliberate sabotage than incompetence. Janelle will have to deal with a guy called Bokar, who's part of the Orion Syndicate. Act 2. Dinner with Esri's family, the Tegan family, is... fine... Ezri is still getting used to being around them, and they're getting used to the idea that she's joined with the Dax Symbiont since the last time they saw her. It's a lot of getting used to. After dinner, Ezri goes into Norvo, the artist's room. It's a hodgepodge of sculptures and paintings and all sorts of stuff, the worst of which he says is his. He's down on himself, getting rejected from the Andorian Academy of Art, and all he wants to do is wallow in his misery, maybe hit the Saurian brandy hard to forget his troubles. He thinks he's not good enough, lacks discipline, and he's needed here in the family business. But Esri reminds him that's just what their mother thinks. He's entitled to a life of his own. The next morning, well, Norvo's got a hangover, and Janus is blaming Acts. He also defaced his own work, and Giannis thinks it's Ezri's disruptive presence. But Ezri counters with a little better understanding. Norvo is being smothered by her, and he needs his freedom. Just then, Janelle interrupts their clash with a visit from one of the local authorities and Miles O'Brien. The chief is in cuffs and beat up a bit by the Orion Syndicate. But he found Marika. She's dead. Act 3. O'Brien found Marika's body, probably six weeks dead, with head trauma and floating in the river. Before he could do anything about it, though, some Nausikens decided to beat him up to scare him off the syndicate, and that's when the authorities intervened, and they don't seem interested in pursuing the case any further. Rested and well-fed, O'Brien is recruited to apply his engineering skills to a piece of mining equipment that's been giving the family some trouble. And he's glad to give it a look. But back to Norvo for a minute. Still hungover, still destroying his art, and still despondent enough to talk to Esri about taking his own life. A joke that doesn't go over well with the counselor. She offers him a break. What if he came back to DS9 with her just to clear his head, to get away from all this for a while? He's not convinced they could get along without him, but he'll think about it. Down in the mine, the chief is doing what the chief does, teching the tech like nobody else can. He found a part that is failing on one of their drills because it's the wrong part, mislabeled to look like the right part, either accidentally or on purpose. O'Brien and Janelle are interrupted by the ferry and a commodities broker, Thario Bokar, who dismisses the chief so he can talk to Janelle alone. This engineer works for Starfleet Intelligence, and he's trying to find someone. Does Janelle know who? It's Marika Bilby, and rumor has it that she's dead. A surprised Janelle listens intently as Bocard tells him that O'Brien needs to leave because uh, it would be a shame if something happened to him. Act four, dutifully, Janelle tells O'Brien that he really needs to go. But O'Brien just says he's taking orders from his superior officer, Esri, plus he's in no hurry to get back to Cisco. When Janelle hurriedly walks out of the room and Esri enters, O'Brien tells her his suspicion. Bokar acts like a guy working for the syndicate, and Janelle acts like a guy who is being pressured by the syndicate. Maybe they should sneakily take a peek at the family business financial records. They do, And what they find is that the payroll shows a connection between the Orion Syndicate and the mining operation when a certain Marika Bilby was on the company payroll. Act 5. Esri has no idea what's going on, so she and O'Brien dig deeper. Starting about nine months ago, Marika was hired to do some undefined job. Then the salary started increasing by quite a lot until they stopped the day before she was killed. According to Esri, everyone in her family has access to the books and responsibility for their contents, but she has no idea who would directly know about Marika, or maybe it's all of them. Time to confront the family. Yanas wants to know the truth from Janelle, who explains that they hit a rough patch with the business and the Orion syndicate showed up to bail them out. He accepted their offer and nobody around him seemed to pay it any attention. But then the syndicate needed a favor out of them, to put someone on payroll without any actual work, to repay a debt. Marika wasn't happy with the amount, though, and she kept asking for more. She was angry at her dead husband, at the syndicate, at the people paying her, but Janelle insists he didn't kill her, which leaves the question of who did. The more the finger is pointed at Chanel, and the more he denies it, the tormented artist Norvo perks up and asserts himself. He didn't mean to do it. He went to Marika to see if he could reason with her, but she wouldn't accept it. Here he is, the son who was seen as lacking strength of his own, now really acting out on his own. He took care of the tough problem on his own. Esri's eyes fill with tears. Sometime later, Norvo is arrested and taken away. Janelle, in shock, starts talking about mining work, but Esri tells him it doesn't matter. He needs to go somewhere else and start a new life. That just leaves Janas. Esri announces that she'll stay long enough for Norvo's trial, and Janas doesn't respond except to ask if what happened was her fault. Esri doesn't answer, but just walks away. Time has passed, and the trial is over. Esri Dax is back home on DS9, where she's found by Chief O'Brien. She tells him that Norvo was sentenced to 30 years, and while the Chief says it's a light punishment, considering, Esri can't help but be sympathetic. She knew him as he was, and now seeing what's happened, she can't help but blame herself for all the times that she wasn't at home. The End. Thank you for that wonderful
1: review, John. I, I guess um, my big question is, what about the cat?
2: <laughs> you know, okay, I say what about the cat. You say what about the cat. One person who does not say what about the cat, Keiko. But Keiko's nowhere to be found. So. Technically, she says so what about the cat. Y- yeah, yeah. Right? She yeah. <laughs> she does not care about the cat. Keiko, good grief, chill. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess next time we see her on the show, maybe she'll, uh, you know, be okay with the cat. I guess we'll find out. Mm -hmm. One thing that we learned on today's episode, uh, you can't shoot 51 containers of gach out an airlock due to environmental regulations. Good to know. That is important to know. I'm, I'm glad to know that, you know, as vast as space is, there are still environmental regulations. Makes sense. Could you just maybe shoot it toward a sun? Like, could you maybe put it in a torpedo or multiple torpedoes maybe to tow it to the nearest, uh, you know, flaming ball of hot gas in the sky and just let that go to town?
1: You know, I'm surprised that, say, someone like an entrepreneur like mm-hmm. Quark didn't get wind of this and say, hey, you know what, Esri, if you don't want those, there's a Klingon chef on station who I could get, you know, cents on the latinum for.
2: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They, sell those things at cost. He could totally take it off her hands. That right. was a business opportunity that, uh, that they missed out on. By the way, also, I'm just impressed that there are 51 varieties of Gach, uh, like the one that stood out to me. Well, one has feet, one squirms, you know, but one is packed in targ blood. Uh, mm. Very interesting detail there on Gach. I, I smell a, a future trivia question based on that. I'll tell you what, though. Uh, Nicole's really good at playing Nauseous.
1: Because ever since that we've been introduced to her character, you know, mm-hmm. she just really knows how to make her her stomach churn expressions and, and sell that. Yeah. Right? I didn't know there was such a thing as a Gachfest. fest. Maybe – is that our new, like, musical event? The gawk yeah.
2: fest? G- gawk fest? Mission Log presents Gachfest. fest? Yeah. Maybe so, yeah. But I, I do like that detail. I mean, there are a lot of good character details with Esri Dax, and I do like that one that – in all the years of Star Trek up until this point, we had not seen somebody who just has something very normal, like mm-hmm. getting space sick or, you know, just getting turned off at certain foods. That I, Anything like that really grounds a character and makes him relatable. I Mm like that. Oh, uh, we always point out, you know, the return of a classic line, and we've been getting a few of these in a row. He's not a detective. He's an engineer. Kind of a spin on a classic Trekism right there.
1: Yeah, that was fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of engineers, so you have the chief engineer on the station that is a dedicated base to the front line of this war. Mm -hmm. And he can just go off book on a mission because...
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: like how does that happen? Like, who signs his time off sheet? That's what I want to know.
2: Yeah. Well, apparently Cisco, which just seems like a bad idea all around, and the chief lied about it and said I'm going home to visit my father. But even then, it's like, could you do something maybe closer, <laughs> where okay. you could get back here because we're in a
1: war? Okay. Yeah. So, Alan, this is for you. So here's your meme, like more believable. Cisco forgetting that he signed off time off sheet, or miles visiting someone other than his actual family. <laughs> Go right? Yes, yes, I love it. Uh, yeah,, now, speaking of family the the family estate that's on this mining plant at the Tegan mm-hmm. estate. Mm-hmm. Did anyone think that it was a good idea to put a giant diamond spike in the middle of a hydraulic door? Does that they,
2: make sense? They made some very weird design choices there. I, it's an impressive building. It, it's big. It says, uh, I, I read somewhere that they were kind of loosely inspired, but like a Frank Lloyd Wright thing with a cantilevered mm-hmm. uh, front of it and all. But, yeah, some also weird design choices. By the way, the set, uh, part of it is a redress of Vic's Lounge. Oh. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that set, I really like Norvo's room because it's just cluttered and full of art and it just looks like the only place that has any life in that house <laughs> you know mm, i mean everything's nice but that looks like the room you can actually relax in he has one of those
1: doors too i guess that's like the door style right in that particular compound yeah yeah which i'm glad that like nobody wears watches in this yeah. you know in this era <laughs> because you walk into one of those diamonds you're going to like trash your watch
2: Oh hey look, I'm it, not even the watch. I, I just you know I'm the type of person who walks into a room and I, I actually real story, true story. I got my belt loop caught on the uh, door hardware of my home office and it literally ripped it out of the door jamb. Oh. The little uh, yeah. So I, I'm a menace no matter what. If you put that much <laughs> stuff in front of me, watch out. It, it, it's all going down. Okay, so here's something that surprised me and made me laugh to
1: no end. And Dorian Art Academy.
2: <laughs> I know. Right. That's. I
1: think that's. It's. It's brilliant, and yet makes me question so many things. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, like, what's next on the surprise list of things that we don't know about? Like the Tellarite Culinary Institute. Yeah. Right. Could (laughs) be. uh,
2: You know. You never know. Could be. Yeah. They just drop those in there. Yeah. Andorians. Not a thing up to this point that we would know them for their art. One thing that I'm kind of disappointed in. It is the 24th century still no cure for a hangover. I thought that would be the kind of thing you would have, particularly in a big, nice, expensive, well-appointed house like that. That's just a thing that you should have in the medicine cabinet. I tell you, you, man,
1: that saurian brandy is dangerous. It's dangerous stuff. Rough,
2: yeah. So, John, if you watch this scene
1: over and over again, as I did, the police officer that brought in Miles in handcuffs, Mm -hmm. exactly what part of New York City or one of the five (laughs) boroughs was this new Sydney cop from? Because, like, you know what I'm saying? Like his, hey, you got Miles O'Brien here. You know, we yeah, got somebody yeah. here who did a crime. I'm going to have to arrest him. And now you're doing Tegan family.
2: <laughs> that's that, That's kind of awesome. Like, of all the things in Star Trek that are reflective or representative of uh, Earth cultures, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Vulcans sort of vaguely influenced by, you know, Eastern mysticism and, and stoicism and, and you know, all this stuff. Here you've got something very specific. Inspired by Brooklyn. Easily. <laughs> so, Easily. Yeah, I thought I was listening to Bill the Butcher or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But hey, and you mentioned the, uh, you know, the shout-out to the Andorians. Here we have also a shout-out to Rigel 4, which we've mm. never seen, but it's been mentioned ever since TOS, uh, way back in Wolf in the Fold. So uh, a planet with a, a long history in Star Trek.
1: Well, here's something that you don't mess with ever, Right, mm-hmm. and my money is going to, always going to be on the chief when it comes to on-site identification of a transdator chip. Right, man, oh man, yeah. Right? He goes, it's clearly marked this way. Miles is like, well, I don't care how it's clearly marked;
2: I can tell by this that it ain't that. Right.
1: <laughs> He's like I, the James Bond of engineer chips.
2: He, he is, right? uh, unless it's one of those things where it, it just happens to be so common for him. And you know, for somebody else, is not. It's like if somebody you know brought you, say, like an iPhone six, but they had written twelve on it. <laughs> <laughs> you just if you, you know, somebody else, they're like, "Why? Well, it, clearly, it says 12. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. let, let me just explain. It's not. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is at like the uh, the Genius Bar, right? Yeah. Bought yeah, this iPhone six. Uh, yeah. It's not a six. I this no, iPhone not it's 12. A twelve. It's not yeah, it's twelve. Not, not a know? twelve. <laughs> so interesting thing about technology. When it works, it works. And what mm. I love about this episode is that, you know what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So mm. why change what a hard hat looks like in a mining operation?
2: Yeah. Right? Great point. Yes. I Classic. mean, it does what it
1: does. And you don't really have to, like, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. But it just seems like with the transdator chips and all this technology and kind of like these laser, mi- uh, laser drills and stuff. Yeah. The hard hat just seems
2: so antiquated. They got to a certain point on DS9 where a set decorator was being told by the producers, like, look, we spend all our money on uh, space glasses Mm -hmm. for Quark's bar and uh, space forks for all the tables. I'm sorry, you can't have space hard hats. You just kind of have to do with conventional hard hats.
1: Sometimes yeah. the world building just gets put aside, you know, yeah. just a little too often in, yeah. uh, for my taste you know, in this series. <laughs> um, so, we, as as we've learned, uh, kind of like Esri's personality, you know, she's kind of very wallflower sometimes, very sheepish sometimes. But when she kind of like put up her back, and said to Chief, you know, when he was trying to investigate, like, who this mm-hmm. money, like, went to, when she said, like, don't investigate this, that's an order, I'm like, ooh, ooh, mm-hmm. ooh, there it is. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, because like, that okay. time it was personal, that time it was family. Exactly. And yeah, that, that was interesting to see. We should be able to reassert that later on. And John, you never go against the family. <laughs> Speaking
1: of not going against the family, mm-hmm. there is... A moment in time when a character truly reveals his or herself. That smile at the end from Norvo? hmm Wow. That was
2: like, oh my God, that was chilling. Definitely his strongest moment. Uh, I'm going to have something to say about the actors later on in the show, but uh, that was a great shot, almost uh, like a little Anthony Perkins uh, in that moment. Yeah.
0: Hey boss, can I go on a vacation with the mob in the middle of the war? Thanks, you're the best. P.S. look after my cat.
2: We will get right back to Prodigal Daughter after a word from our sponsor this week. And, well, that sponsor is all of you. It's all of you who have joined us over at Mission Log's Patreon, and that is patreon.com slash mission where there is so much going on every day of the week. Norman, what's happening
1: at Patreon? So what's happening over on Patreon, John, is that not only do we have fantastic Patreon subscribers, but some of those subscribers, a majority of them have actually come over to what we offer on Patreon as a service, and that is our Discord server. And our Discord server is just this fantastic community of all of our subscribers, or most of our subscribers that have come over and have engaged in so many different channels that we've created, from food and beverages to every single permutation of Star Trek that's out there past and present, and a variety of different topics in between. The great thing about this is people can engage in a forum that they feel safe and secure and confident about being able to share who they are, their ideas in a respectful and
2: an encouraging environment. Yeah, it's, it's not the same old, same old social media. This truly is a community. We're all having a blast there. We get to have deep and thoughtful conversations as well as a lot of fun. And sometimes we have those conversations live over video as we do with our weekly after dark feedback sessions after an episode of Mission Log Drops. You've been doing Sunday morning chats just to get everybody engaged and to check in. Uh, Another opportunity during the week, and like you said, there are all the discussion boards that are just happening all the time. I want to give a shout-out to our newest members who have joined us over at Patreon, Armin, Janet, the lone draftsman, Joanna, and Scott Palm. Good to see you, my friend, over there. So everybody jump into the Discord, say hi to each other, and uh, just jump into that conversation. We will see you there soon at patreon.com slash missionlog. All right Norman, a long time meme in Mission Log is that uh everybody on Star Trek is an orphan <laughs> by by fate or by choice, and now we have Ezri Dax to add to the mix, and I really have to wonder, you know I mentioned uh back in trivia that this is an episode that was on a very short deadline they'd kind of. Run out of ideas here in the middle of the season. Some stuff was being put off on purpose. But here uh, they had about a two week window before filming was going to start. So they just had to knock out a script fast. We're going to do something uh, that's the backstory of Esri, who then said, well, her family's got to be a wreck. you know, because that seems to be such an ongoing thing. Um, In in terms of positive role models, let's see, in this series, we've got, uh, well, we got Cisco. Maybe could Martok in there? Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly being a a father, well, brother slash father figure to uh, to Worf. Uh, Then we have people like Dr. Bashir, who by choice distance themselves from their families out of embarrassment or or annoyance or self-preservation. Um, I just wonder, is it because in a lot of literature and a lot of kind of heightened storytelling, our heroes have to have some separation from family, or is it because DS9 in particular, maybe Star Trek in general, doesn't always do a great job with families when they get them. I mentioned two of the good ones, but, you know, let's not put too fine a point on it. The O'Brien family situation has just been bungled from beginning to end, and I didn't mention it too much in the recap or in the observations, but we certainly hint at it. Here's Chief O'Brien with some time off, and he just goes and does something completely... unrelated to the fact that he's got a wife and kids yeah you know the
1: interesting thing about family dynamics in star trek i think that we're used to like we're, we're used to learning our characters because our characters become these icons that mean so much to us not every single character but we always have those characters that we gravitate to and i think that much like in life like say at work, there are people that we gravitate to at work or there are people that we gravitate to in our social situations. And then we see, maybe we have the opportunity to see them in their family dynamic. You know, we'll get invited to say, and and this is apropos to what's happening right now, we're coming up on holiday season. So we may be introduced to someone else's family during the holidays. We may be introduced to them for some type of uh, milestone event like a birthday, you know, or a wedding. Or a bar mitzvah, or a, a you know a confirmation, something where you take that particular character or that particular person that you've either idolized or learned to grow and love or learned to just really respect, and you see them in their natural surrounding, that changes everything. Yeah, it really does because the person that you think you know isn't the person who they are in those particular circumstances. Maybe it's because they want to create this distance of. This isn't, what I de- this isn't what makes me who I am. This is part of my life, but it doesn't define me, right? My career or my identity is something that only you have the perspective of. You being, well, we being the audience only have the perspective of. So all of these people that we've learned to idolize mm-hmm. in the series or subsequent series, these are our heroes. And what's that old adage? Be very careful about
2: meeting your heroes, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's see, but I I wonder, though, is is there something, you know, an unintended message here uh, that undermines as much as Star Trek has this positive view of humanity and the positive view of our abilities— is there something a little darker at play here? And and it might just be because it's a literary or entertainment trope when it comes to heroes and their journeys, that says that families aren't a part of that. You know, there there's a lot to be said about the friends who are chosen families, and clearly people who get together on a crew, Generally, they work well together. They are respectful of each other. They have personal lives with each other as well. Um, but typically, when you introduce a family member, it, it's to the detriment of that character. I, I like what mm. you're saying about the idea of giving a character some color and giving a character some deeper aspects that we don't always see because what we see is their job. But, you know, it, it's one thing for Worf. To have this sort of, like, comedically entertaining family, the Reženkos, who just seem like lovely, if a bit over-the-top people, but then he is embarrassed by them and shuns them and acts horribly toward them you know? Mm-hmm. So it would be one thing if we just got a little taste of it say, like, oh, okay, well, they come from a quirky family life, and it isn't that charming. But it's another thing when you dig another layer deeper and go, like, oh, they're actually dysfunctional and terrible to each other as well. And that's that's what we have here with Esri.
1: Well, you know, sometimes uh, when, when people get to see, you know, get to look behind the veil and see exactly like the Wizard of Oz, like mm-hmm. playing all the strings, and you know that he's just a human man, that's something that is, uh, it's it's something that people don 't they don 't want to have exposed you know uh, as part of their lives you know they 've cultivated their lives and curated kind of like their social presence their online presence or their professional presence in such a way where they 're trying to kind of like be the ideological version of themselves like the best version of themselves mm-hmm. that 's just because people haven 't been able to dig deep in their in their background it's it 's akin to finding someone's yearbook and saying i can't believe you had that hair or you know you were your most uh you're, you're most voted to succeed in this or that sure. you know or you were part of such and such club this is your past no one really likes their past being looked into without specific permissions or you know guidance you know Looking through that past because there are a lot of inferences, there are a lot of assumptions that can be made. Oh, you're like mm. this now because mm. of this part of your past. Oh, Esri's like this now because we've met her mom. Now, now, fortunately for her, only the chief has met the family, and he's probably going to be sworn to silence because of the, you know, the the on uh, ongoing you know investigation and litigation that's happening with Norvo. Yeah. But sometimes it's mortifying, right? When you have somebody that's that whose opinion you respect meet your family who they're not all on the same page as you are just in terms of your outward professional curated personal appearance. Uh,
2: well, let me go back to something you just said, though, which is uh, this idea that, you know, you, you can sort of get to know somebody, you learn something about their family, their upbringing, their background, you need to go like, oh, okay, you are this person because of that background. Which is true. I, we are all a product of our environments. We're all a product of our upbringing. But but in this episode, that comes to a very strange place. Esri is who she is because of her background and her experiences. Norvo is who he is because of his background and experiences. And that's where we get to this really interesting, touchy place of that fine line between blame and responsibility. And I, I don't think this episode necessarily comes down on a specific, but we'll, we'll get to that in our wrap-up in a few minutes here. But I, I get left with this kind of ambiguity in that final moment between Esri and her mother. So remember, Yanis asks, this isn't my fault, is it, Esri? I didn't do this, did I? And what does Esri do? She Just turns and walks away. Now, I'm not saying that there is a perfect answer to that, but by turning and walking away, I I think that just leaves far more questions than it actually uh, attempts to answer there. I I would say to Giannis, if you're actually try to take this uh, maybe a little dispassionately, a little clinically, so... Yannis, no, you didn't do this. You, you are not to blame in this respect, and and she may be a terrible mother, um, although that can only be measured in degrees, because certainly on Star Trek we've seen some good mothers and some terrible mothers. But but Norvo's actions are his own, um, and this is a place that I think is is really. Wait, are they though? Well, okay, so just the okay. same way that we have to look at all okay. of the characters in that family. Like mm-hmm. if we're going to say that they are all a product and therefore the person who uh was the the you know, the authority figure, the parent in this case, is responsible for all of their actions, well, Giannis is responsible for all the good things that Esri has done. She's responsible for all the bad decisions that Janelle has done. She's responsible for the bad behaviors uh, that Norvo has taken. But if you take that to logical extreme, well, Giannis is simply a product of her upbringing by her parents, who are simply a product of the upbringing by their parents and so on until you rewind it and get back to, I don't know, big bang <laughs> you know but, that's not, but i you know but that i mean you know that's
1: not necessarily wrong because i think that sometimes you know there are certain like emotional rails that are set uh and i think that at least if we if we just take the responsibility of talking about like what happened with norvo norvo's path was set on a very specific course because of very specific examples of how he was overlooked you know so t- let's take the dinner exa- uh, the scene for mm-hmm. example the dinner scene mm-hmm. He was trying to do something. He was trying to actually pay compliment to her sister, his sister who ha- he hasn't seen in months, right? He's just glossed over mm-hmm. every single time. And not, not just from, you know, Giannis, like, you know, from Janelle as well. You know, he's glossed over every single time. His level of importance was reduced to nothing. So if you if that happens to somebody, that's a condition that they have been set to in order to operate mentally from. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily that he is... Necessarily responsible for his own actions, he's conditioned to behave in a certain way because of the,
2: you know, of of the consistency of what happened to him. That that is all a contributing factor. I think ultimately uh, the action, the 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 choice taken to go into action comes down on that person, not not the, you know, when Norvo goes to trial, clearly it's not his mother on trial and her parents on trial and their parents on trial. Of course, we can look at contributing factors, but ultimately it's him at the end of the day. It was his choice to go over to that house. It was his choice to, or uh, choice is not the right word there, but his reaction that he had. And yes, he is a product of that conditioning. He is a product of, uh, of all of that. But if you were to try to go down that road to Point blame, you could say, yeah, but, but look at Giannis' daughter. She's a successful uh, Starfleet officer who's— But
1: not because of Giannis. She left.
2: Asri left. No, she, she left he, at a yeah. certain point, but— But she left because kind of- she needed
1: to, she, because yeah. she needed to grow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously I have some very strong feelings about yeah, this, yeah. but the thing is that I think that all of the children in this family have been choiceless from the mm. very beginning— you know, they didn't have a choice to be who they wanted to be. So look at, look at Janelle. Janelle, I don't think that he wanted to be some type of like foreman or mining operator. He resents almost every single thing from the tone of what he says. He doesn't mm. like it, but he has to do it. Why? Because he's the eldest. The el- I'm stealing my, <laughs> my <laughs> actual fine. notes. Yeah, that, that's good. You know, that's good. <laughs> but I, I guess that what, what I'm saying is, yeah. and, and why I have a point of contention here is, mm. yes, yes, uh, Norvo is to blame for the murder. Obviously, you know, it was his choice to do that choice I used loosely, but it's the conditions of why he did it were not his choice at all. He was actually, he was cornered into it, right? He was, he was cornered into making this decision, a decision that he wasn't, he didn't have the agency or understanding
2: to make. I, because of how he was conditioned. But do you think he didn't understand that murdering somebody is wrong? I, You know, I understand it's a crime of passion. He got worked up. We didn't see that scene take place. But they were arguing over money, and she was angry. That that, that was his description of her. She was angry about this, angry about that, angry about the other thing. And he didn't... I don't, know. Think, he ha- I don't think he had the intellectual
1: agency to understand how he could maneuver himself out of that situation. Mm. That's what happens when people are when when the choice is taken away from people. They don't they they don't build up the intelligence level to be able to find every single possible way out. Janelle probably could have. Esri definitely could have, and so would Giannis. But Norva was he's just this overtly sensitive artistic spirit. What does he know about subterfuge or intrigue or politics or obfuscation? Nothing. So the only thing that he could do is react in a way where it's survival of the fittest. And what do survival of the fittest responses indicate? You either kill or be killed. That's how you survive. He went to a very primal decision-making process, and that's the only thing that he knew. Why?
2: Because he didn't have the opportunity to make those decisions for himself to get to that moment. I have to see. I, I think Giannis can shoulder some of the blame for having this toxic environment that he's brought up in, for smothering him, for doing all the things that Esri calls her out about – at the end of the day, though, it, it it's, you know, the hand-holding disappears. And as terrible and maybe not outright abusive, but certainly uh, emotionally abusive as she was to all of her kids, well, one out of three of those kids is a murderer. <laughs> the other two are definitely not. So how much of that blame can we say actually belongs on Giannis as opposed to, well, it it's this— young guy who's screwed up and we can point to all the reasons that he's screwed up but it still comes down to him on that day and what he chose to do then i guess that that begs the bigger question then why does she
1: ha- why does she have to ask that rhetorical question to esri who doesn't have any answers for her because that's like the sticking point of of what we're talking about here if she didn't feel somewhat responsible or wholly responsible for Nor- uh, her son's actions
2: then why ask the question to begin with? Now, now that is a fascinating question, and that's how I wonder, how will it affect the character going forward? So I guess we'll find out in the many, many sequels of this episode, how does Giannis deal with this?
0: Let's bring this in for a landing with a thorough analysis of Ezri's totally normal, well-adjusted family as soon as she finds one.
1: So as we do here in Mission Log, you know, traditionally we get to the end of the episode. And as you can probably tell by the previous segment, that there are a lot of things that John and I still have unresolved that we'd like to get to. And we're going to try and get to that in these two last segments. Does this episode hold up? Does it stand the test of time? And then finally, in our morals and meanings and messages. So uh, I'd like to start with you, John. Let's start with the very first and obvious topic does this episode hold up for you?
2: So I feel like this is one of those where even the writers admit like, oh, we didn't have much time. (laughs) You know, that's sort of uh, an excuse up front, even before you've gotten into the episode. I feel like this isn't a bad episode, a patently bad episode. It's just sort of, it leaves me with the question of why are we doing this? Why Why are we here? Why do you live here? And, and I'm going to draw a really weird parallel. The movie Solo. You saw Solo, right? Everybody saw Solo because it I love okay, Solo. Okay, all right. <laughs> so everybody, because everybody loves Han Solo, right? And, and Disney yeah. decided to make a prequel movie about him. And it was well-produced and it had a big budget and some good action sequences. But a friend of mine asked me after I saw that if... Giving Han Solo a tragic love story in his background made me like the character anymore, and, and I had to admit that I I didn't care at all. Like like the the fact mm. that he had that backstory now didn't affect my appreciation or fandom of that character that has been there for forty years, you know. Um, and it, it, there there wasn't going to be anything in the movie that informed or deepened what we already liked. So here's the problem with Esri. It's the same thing. We already like her. And DS9 already has done a brilliant job by changing who Dax is now and introducing a character who truly stands on her own. And she already got a great single episode focus with After Image. And similarly, I'll go down a path here with Chief O'Brien. We all love the Chief. And I liked the episode "Honor Among Thieves" uh, a bit more than you did, Norman. But but um, <laughs> but but still, I don't know if I needed any follow up there. I mean, the guy has Bilby's cat, which everyone seems to either forget about or hate. If you're Keiko, so I don't know if I needed more detail on either of those characters' lives. And look, this is no slight on Nicole DeBoer at all. She is great as always. And I, I just feel like in this, there's no chemistry with Esri and her brothers. And I get it that they're in a chilly family dynamic, but, but come on. The problem is this episode is trying to be a family drama like Long Day's Journey and Tonight, where you have all this sort of you know intimate scenes of dialogue And then it reveals and builds up to something. But you're trying to do that and do a crime drama, like a procedural, you know. And -hmm. at the end, I found Esri's family to be pretty forgettable, except in the abstract. I'll walk away from DS9 going, well, Esri's a great character. And they made bold choices by making her different from Jadzia. And, oh, yeah, her family's a mess. But but, that, but that's basically what I'll take out of it. So it doesn't hold up as an episode anything beyond just the fact that Nikki is good and Colm is good as always. And that's about it. I didn't need these mm-hmm. stories to enhance my enjoyment of what I already enjoyed. So I have to say no on this one. Uh, how about you? See, this is where I love uh, having these conversations
1: with you, John, because it's not necessarily that I disagree with you. It's just that I see this episode from a completely different awesome. perspective. Awesome. That, that's why you know, I'm here. I mean, I'm here for this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I understand that, yes, uh, where where does this episode lie in kind of like the last 14 or so episodes that we have to the end of the series? Yeah. Like, is this episode an episode worth telling? I would say yes and no. I would say no, because, you know, we're we're dealing with a very limited amount of time to tell and wrap up this very significant story in the history of Star Trek. But I would also say yes, because I think this episode is relevant and, and transcends more than just a story within the Star Trek universe. So I'm looking at it from a what does this mean in terms of more of a, a meta universe type of a story. So what happened to Norvo is prevalent and applicable to many sensitive young men and women who feel and always have felt choiceless and trapped for a variety of different reasons. Norvo represents those who have tragically fallen through the cracks of his own family. And because he was gifted with abilities such as sensitivity and creativity and a unique way of seeing the world as expressed through artwork and poetry and endeavors that give him a way to channel these very powerful and personal forms of expression, this is the way the story is structured and specifically the way the archetypes of Ezri's family is presented in both relatable and, and and identifiable ways the overbearing mother who uses her maternal strength differently in order to protect what is hers including going back to what I just described about Norvo suffocating the uh, suffocating nature of using her children in order to further the family's business And status, not only in Trill society, but in the capitalist circles that she's involved with. Janelle, being the eldest, had the succession plan from parent to child thrust upon him. uh, So the overwhelming need to succeed forced him into making decisions, any decisions, in order to prove to the family that he had the will and the means to lead when called upon. Now, Esri, by her own admission, chose to leave because she saw how her mother and the business was turning her family into something she found distasteful and stagnant. Mm-hmm. And Norvo, being the creative and sensitive one, was simply lost in the balance without even that which fed his very soul, his creativity, his his, art- his artistry stripped away from him at an inch at a time, only to make his stand with the most extreme choice to murder Marika Billby just to prove his worth to his family. So this family dynamic is something that many of us have either experienced firsthand or have been witness of and have been helpless to affect, which is why I feel this episode is so incredibly powerful and does withstand the test of time because it's a story that happens every single day and it has the potential to destroy so many innocent lives because in our society, feelings and sensitivity and creativeness and individuality and daydreaming and artistic expressions are values that are tragically put aside because commerce and personal financial gain and the accumulation of wealth are still the social currencies that sadly still
2: re- that sadly still retain their influence and value. I love everything that you just said, particularly about the the value that we put on those uh, kind of more abstract and esoteric ideals that we pay a lot of lip service to, but then at the end of the day we put aside because, well, money is what talks. Um, I wish that I got that out of this episode. Um, Mm -hmm. I I really wish I did. And my my worry is that it it sort of devolves into this trope where it's, um, okay, here's the messed up family. Let's point the finger at, oh, well, it all goes back to the evil mother, So, you know, it it, it takes all of that and just sort of boils it down to this one archetype character. And I I wish that, you know, maybe it's part of the problem with Esri being a new character on the show is Mm, that you don't have the time to actually parcel out these things. Maybe if I'd felt a connection to uh, Norvo earlier and thought like, oh, wow, he's got this sensitive artistic spirit, I'm interested in him, then maybe I would feel like I was more emotionally involved in it. Um, But that then brings us to our morals, meanings, messages, and and what we got out of it. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm looking for, I'm trying not to be flippant or jokey ever in this section. Sometimes it, it feels like there just isn't a lot there. And I don't know that there's – with the original writer's intent that there was a lot of a message here because it is kind of like an episode of Columbo with uh, some character nuggets thrown in there for uh, Miles and in particular for Esri. Certainly don't do business with the mob. That that should be mm-hmm. you know good lesson for anybody. I wondered if some of these morals, meanings, messages, some of these more uh, pointed lines of dialogue were really – The right lines of dialogue. So Esri says to Janelle, after Norvo's trial is over, you need to go. It doesn't matter. Just go. Find another life for yourself. Trust me, you'll be happier. Given this family, maybe. Maybe that's right, but... Is it really? Is it totally? Is that the best course of action? And does she mean without any of the rest of the family? Just, you know what, Janelle, go. And don't even care or wonder or worry about what happens to our mother? You know, there's sort of a big loose end there at the end of that statement. I understand where her heart's coming from in that, because she did get to go away. But she got to go away into a structure— That was there ready for her, ready to absorb all these orphans who go off and become heroes in starships and leave behind a family that was still intact, dysfunctional, but intact. So Mm. is it just as easy to dole out that advice to a guy like Janelle? Janelle seemed, and look, maybe this was the actor, maybe this was the writing, maybe it was the the directing, I don't know. Janelle seemed tougher but just as lost as Norvo. I yeah. agree. I totally so, agree. And, and, and going back to your point, just to,
1: just to jump in here for a second, I think that if we had more history with Esri, mm-hmm. this would have probably uh, had a little bit more impact overall uh, for a general audience, as mm-hmm. opposed to, say, me specifically. Yeah. yeah.
2: And then the, there's that last scene that I think is so interesting with uh, Esri and the Chief, and uh, this is after the trial and after we know that uh, Norvo is getting 30 years. And Esri says, I should have seen that. I should have tried to stop it. She says, you're not responsible for that. And she says, but I am, don't you see? I should have gone home a long time ago. And this is where I think the episode is getting lost in its own message. Esri absolutely does blame her mother for Norvo's actions. And then what, tries to blame herself? Wants to shoulder some of that blame for herself by saying that because I didn't go home enough or at the right time or say the right thing when I was there. And it takes the chief here to be the counselor and say, no, no, you're not. So the, the round robin of blame and guilt here is a bit of a mess. And I'm not saying that it's not realistic. People do that all the time. It's just an odd place to end this story where almost nobody pipes up and says, Norvo committed a crime. He might have had bad influences in his life, but that is another story. Right now, the thing we're concerned about is that he committed a crime, and he needs to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And I understand that there are people who shoulder that guilt rightly or wrongly. And now, well, now realistically, we're in the position where the counselor needs the counseling. Uh, because it can yeah. just as easily eat her up as well, but she is looking to spread out this guilt um, and this level of responsibility on their mother and now on herself it um, It becomes a a strange closed loop system here
1: well, the interesting thing about guilt is that you know guilt uh, some people have this uh you know this opinion of guilt being kind of like this all encompassing thing, but it has a multitude of layers, you know, uh, how people kind of identify with that guilt. And I think that that's where Esri at right now at the end of the episode. It's what did she do? Uh, or what didn 't she do that would have possibly helped Norbo through this, and we mm-hmm. saw this during the course of the episode she 's the only one that really kind of understood him right she 's the only one who tried to at least understand him and tried to foster like this connection between who he was at a, as an artist, who he was as this creative and gentle soul. Um, I guess for me, like this episode uh, it kind of it all begins with uh, a quote that kind of popped into my head uh, when I first saw this episode, and that 's from uh, William Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, from Act One, Scene mm. Three, the quote says, "To thine own self be mm. true." Now that cuts both ways, right? Because that des- it describes what Norvo was going through throughout the course of this episode, and I think that this is where the, my this is where I landed with morals and meanings and messages. What what does this phrase mean, and why is it applicable here? Why am I bringing this up? So at first, when we saw Esri support Norvo about staying the course and pursuing his happiness and a career in art. This is how I felt that Shakespeare's quote was applicable. As someone who struggled trying to convince my own parents, especially my dad, about dropping pre-med mm. to pursue a career in art, especially in comic book <laughs> illustration, the The reaction that I experienced was something that was emotionally challenging for me. And, and after a long period of depression— and self-doubt about my own abilities and choices in my own life, I did eventually come to the conclusion that it was my own life that I was fighting for. What's more empowering than the gift that we can truly cherish in our lives than the ability to decide our own fates for ourselves? When we come to that realization, we choose to live and succeed or fail based on our own choices and our own merits and our own passions. That's the moment in our lives where we have true freedom right? Have true agency over who we are, whether those choices are professional or religious or discovering our sexual or or gender identities. Embracing the path that leads us to become our very best selves empowers us with something stronger and more enlightening and freeing than any force that we can imagine, except for perhaps one. Parental approval. What Norvo ultimately suffered his entire life is the quote-unquote a movable object to his irresistible force, his mother's approval, and you can you can use that as a as a way to just say parental mm-hmm. approval, and ultimately this is when the perversion of Shakespeare's quote "To thine own self be true" can be applied to what Norvo had become, his own self as seen in his mother's eyes, his brother's approval, and regretfully. Admitted by Esri herself, her sister's indifference from being absent in a time where Norvo needed her the most. For those of us out there who are struggling with trying to discover our fullest potential, in whatever form you believe that to be, then Norvo is a cautionary tale about having his truth supplanted by what ultimately destroyed him in the end, and forced him to fall down a path that not only erased the sensitive beautiful and inspiring soul of someone who had have inspired so many others, but became yet another statistic and a tool for what we see tragically happen every day in our life, the loss of individuality.
2: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website, your opportunity to comment and connect with us, is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log,
1: The Emperor's New Cloak.
0: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Considering what happened with Bilby's wife, it's probably for the best that Bilby's cat now spends his time leaving cat hair all over the chief's pants. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com. Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket?